anyway, I have to upgrade my upgrade yours too. to yeah to withstand i know all the data now i know it's so I much never thought i would be in that position i mean i never <laughs> imagined you know ever doing this like having a podcast and being a part of this group i mean just so many things i know it's a lot so it's a lot it's an interesting change <laughs> and i'm buying equipment now yeah everything's now up I'm yeah, I'm, yeah i'm such a technophobe so Oh, everything right. it's very hard to be on it's, top of that I I am too but you know what it's it 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 pushes me to learn something new I mean I hung on to tapes until mm. you could not have a tape player they didn't build a car with a tape player in it anymore that's when I let go of and tape. you were still very was yes like, give me my cassettes do you still have yes. a box of them somewhere I don't they got lost I moved so many times and even my cds did so it took a while to give that up but it's um or to go, uh, it's been, they've been gone a long time, but it took a while to give up and, and to those things and to step into the new, I, I wasn't a big texter in the beginning and now I prefer it, you know? So it's mm -hmm. sort of a, mm -hmm. you know, just, um, you're like a late adopter of yes. technology. Yeah. Yes. But I like, am too. it's, it's, but give me like, I learned how to open a wine bottle on the beach <laughs> using a key. You did. Pen. Wow. Yes. Now I love to fix those kinds of problems, practical, like every day, like, you know, my mom taught me how to sew where you don't have any of the seam showing. If you want to oh, yeah. have a look where there's a mm -hmm. button and you have a gap, for example, and you can take that gap. So like, I've learned all of the, she, 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 she used to teach things like that. So I like problem solving these really material things. Anyway, we don't have to keep talking about this. It's just <laughs> what, so, so. No, that's cool. I yeah. mean, I, I once uh, picked no. a lock with a, <laughs> with a paperclip. I, there it, you go. It did take yes. me a couple of hours, but I, yeah. I got in. But you so. think, yes, yeah. but there's something that's like so gratifying about that. And you know what, if we're going to put the kind of psychological spin on it, I think that was one of the things I struggled with a bit as a therapist, at least in my early years in the practice was that for something that is for somebody that really likes to see results in black and white and therapy, you don't see that at mm -hmm. all. I think that contributed to a lot of early career anxiety that I had. Oh, that's so, interesting. Yeah. I just kind of made that connection right now, but mm. well, that's a perfect segue. Um, yeah. So we were gonna uh, that the article that Lisa Sullen Davis wrote yes. just yes. was published in the Free Press. Yes. And that was that was interesting. It was a really good article. I really yes. I, she did such a good job putting that together, and it was about yes. how social justice is taking over um, counseling. Yes. therapy and and she talked with both of us for that article yes so um it's very pertinent and you know it, it you mentioned that you had as a as a therapist there were some things that were that you had to kind of learn to get in a flow with and things that were yeah. difficult for you but this has changed everything there's always been those classical issues with the rapport or how well yeah. the modality is working or whatever it might be Yes. But now this introduces a whole another element. Yes, it does. Um, it's funny you say that because when this started, when, when critical social justice started to become incorporated a lot more into the curriculum, I actually kind of sat there with myself and said, I have to learn a whole new language and an entire new theory. Wow. Wait, so did you, was it, do you remember like a, starting point of that like when did that yeah. was it like sudden and you'd been teaching this way and then it was like boom here we're going to introduce this was there yeah. something like that I mean I think there was and I talked about this I think before and it's funny the more I talk about it I think the more I remember and the more mm -hmm. I come up with sort of a better way to frame a framework for myself to understand what happened because mm -hmm. I do think that it was already there. The sprinklings of it were, were there. And I don't mm -hmm. think it was as in your face or as prominent or whatever, but, um, there was a particular moment. I think I've shared the story before about my student who, um, had, had written, I was teaching a group therapy class and he wrote in his paper that, um, he thought I hated men. I remember I was, that. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So he's the one who I went to my supervisor who happened to be his academic advisor. Mm -hmm. She was, you know, the head of the trauma department at the time. And I was working in the trauma department as a professor. So I said to her, you know, this is your student. I don't, I mean, what do you think about this? We used to share, you'd share work sometimes with the advisor. If um, there's something that came up that was concerning, that was actually a good policy. 
So she said, oh, he's woke now. So the minute she said that I could put together what woke meant, in my opinion, I, I could figure it out. He was, you know, black male. I could figure out, and, you know, very successful in mm-hmm. a, a particular industry. I don't want to give too many details, but there was an industry he was in before he changed extremely successful. And then now, you know, it's going through this whole self-awareness kind of epiphany and awakening. And so mm-hmm. then well, woke awakening, but mm-hmm. That's when I said, okay, I figured out that, but I, I literally that very same day I go in and I start reading papers that I was going to grade. And I see the word cisgender and oh my gosh, same day, my God. Yes. And did you very same day, did you have to have that word explained to you or did you just, cause it feels like there was a lot of creep with this stuff to me. Like, I don't remember when I noticed it, but it was just there. Well, I sat there and went. I think I'm in my office was next door to somebody that worked in like the LGBTQ, et cetera, specialization. And I remember talking to him that day and I just, he had, we were talking about maybe me teaching a class in their department. And I said, I don't think I can. Hmm. There's just a lot of stuff. I'm not, I don't have a good grasp on. And I remember feeling like he was looking at me and there was a judgment that kind of Mm. came over me where, gee, you need to be studying this stuff. You need to understand what these movements are. You need to know what these words mean and these concepts. And did you feel that from him or was that more of an internal thing? No, I felt it from him Mm -hmm. without him directly stating it. Mm -hmm. And I just went, I don't want to do this. I don't, Mm. I don't want to do this. I have to learn this to me feels like a whole new language that I don't know. And I have to figure out how to learn it. I was able to figure out what cisgender meant because of the context of the paper and the way that it was written. So I put Mm -hmm. together Mm -hmm. what that was, but had, you know, I had no, had never seen the word ever before. And I, I just, I didn't use it in my case studies or case examples that I would share with the class either. And they would get very upset. I mean, see, these things all start coming back to you. You've had talked about it so many times and, and, you know, they have a little, well, you need to put in the, the gender, what I I can't remember what it was even. And then, you know, so I, I just said, well, I'm not going to do that. So you're just going to have to accept it. I mean, I just, Mm -hmm. but I knew that I I needed to learn these things and I didn't, I wasn't up for it. I just wasn't up for it. Mm -hmm. It was a language. It was something different. And Mm -hmm. I just, that, that was not of interest to me. It wasn't. Yeah. um, well, to me, it's, it's, it was just another, like another complicated, mm-hmm. convoluted theory to add on top of all of this. Of so much else. So much else. You know, is something that about you noticing like a, like there's a fixed point where you became aware of this. That's really interesting. Um, I guess, I guess I can think of times when that happened to me as well. Yeah. But, but there's this way that this stuff is presented that, um, it's like, I don't know, I've had conversations about this before. I think I talked with Val Thomas about this, about how rather unlike other concepts that come into the, I guess the academic sphere or any kind of, any kind of um, educational paradigm, unlike these concepts that get robustly discussed and debated and introduced and there's like seminal yes. papers and such, this stuff was almost slid in. Like you're already supposed to know it. Like we're not even going to, yeah, it's it's like, we're just, we're not going to go through a phase of introducing you to this because you should have known it yesterday, even though we're telling it to you for the first time right now. Yes. That was the impression I got is that I should have already known, even though I had just literally heard these, these words um, the same day, even I was only Mm -hmm. on campus a couple of days a week. So that's, you know, I guess why they, I guess also happened in the same day because I was there to grade papers and I had a class at night and I, you know, used my time to get, I got there early to talk to my boss about her student that was in my class or her, yeah, student that was in my class. Yeah. Anyhow, but um, no, there was a feeling that you needed to have known, but there's nowhere yeah. to go to find it. You know, there's no. not like there was a resource guide that was given right. to us or something. Yeah. One day it just emerged. I felt like, just and I went there. 
Yes. Uh, CNY photo video. Hi, I see you in the chat there. Thanks for joining us. So he says, uh, we just talked about this in Mon Monday in Jennifer's group, the whole origins of the term cisgender, it seems to have appeared out of nowhere. Yes. And that was the way it felt. That is That's how exactly it felt. That's exactly how it felt. And I went, what is, what, what is this? I don't know what this is. And then I have this person over here that's telling me, you know, that I need to have an, you know, an awareness or, I mean, it was sort of a, like, how could you not know it? Sort of right. a judgmental look. Yeah. Like, how could yeah. you not have already been incorporated? Like, I think he said something about how he had been incorporating this for a long time into his classes or something. And I said something like, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. I mean, I kind of acted as though I knew more than I did. He kind of mm -hmm. knew I didn't know what I was talking about or what he was talking about. And I didn't, I could put it together, but then I thought, well, if there's a cisgender means, so what does it mean when you feel not, you know, the same connected to your gender and your sexual orientation? Like it's just too mm -hmm. complicated. It was, mm -hmm. it's so, com it's so complicated for something that to me isn't, isn't, I mean, it just, it isn't, I mean, yeah. Well, it's, it is, it's what you have to do if you're going to normalize everything. If that's you're going to say problem yeah. bingo. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. It's that when you normalize everything, then you have to learn everything on the inside and out. And somebody had made a really good, you know, comparison to that's like saying to every restaurant that they have to all have at least one vegan option, one, you know, gluten-free option, because you have to appeal you know, to everybody. And if somebody's allergic to gluten and you don't have a gluten-free option, then it's not like, oh, just pick a new restaurant. That's what we do. Mm -hmm. We just pick a new restaurant. Right. It's, you know, that it would be like telling them they're forced to accommodate that. Right. That's the normalization component where then you're right. We're sitting there needing to learn 50 new terms every, you know, couple mm -hmm. of months because some researcher in the university of Washington, who, by the way, came up with the ZIR and the, the, the ZIR oh, no. one and the she, yeah. the, the mm -hmm. XI, she pronouncing mm -hmm. uh -huh. that was at the, that was during the, the 2020, 2021 was COVID. Oh, really? Pandemic. Oh gosh. That's okay. what I, I, 98 of them appeared or something like that. It was in the eighties or nineties. Okay. So mm -hmm. then mm -hmm. I told my friends, we're going to have to learn all this. Oh my God, Christine, you're overreacting. Well, what happened? Right. Those yeah. started to show up and then here we are. So yeah. then now when the university of fill in the blank puts out another research study that comes up with 25 other pronouns or, or concepts, then you have to go and, and follow these people and you mm -hmm. need to learn it all mm -hmm. because that is the way that you are going to teach a very well-rounded class. I mean, that, that's just absolutely nonsense and it's utter, it's utter nonsense and just word salad. My favorite. Yeah. yeah. Word salad, just a bunch of things in there that just is one big mess. It is. It's like the Stanford, um, um, the harmful language guide. Yes. Which is the, exactly it's kind of like the right. other it's, side of the coin is yeah. like the removal from language of things that could be even <laughs> remotely like linked to something that someone somewhere could be offended by. Yes. <clears throat> so it's sort I mean, where does that end? I mean, where does, where does that, where does that end? I've seen it even, I mean, I've seen it playing out laid out and people that I know in my personal life too. It's like this lack of tolerance mm -hmm. for, you know, a different or, or for discomfort or distress or something. It's um, like they've hijacked the word safe. So I can't, that word safe mm -hmm. makes me just choke. It, I can't it, even. Yeah. Yeah. It makes my it skin crawl to hear it sometimes. Yes. You know? because, There's a few words like that. that yeah. Are so the cloaked point, with double meaning. Yeah, they are because the whole point of psychological safety was so that you would be able to say what you really truly think and feel without, you know, being judged. I mean, it was supposed to be still being treated with compassion. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, it's used as a tactic to keep people weak and to keep people angry and to mm -hmm. keep people distracted and disoriented and um, hostile. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Lisa's article, it, she used a couple of little vignettes, little anecdotes of people yes. who'd been through a therapy experience with a social justice therapist. Yes. And how that, how harmful that was. Yes. Not just to that therapeutic relationship, but also it gave the, the client something that they really needed to, uh, they needed to work to process yes. a new experience that had been really harmful because it happened within the context of a trusted relationship. And that's yes. a huge violation of the, uh, you know, 
the, I think the ethical code or yes. what, what at least it used to be before they rewrote it to make it yes be able to encompass this stuff. But one of the things that I, when I think about what's happening in, in therapy, and I, I noticed um, Google told me today that it's uh, mental health awareness month or something like that, or week or day or something. And I, I've seen that in a couple of places now. The, I got a letter from the library saying something about mental health awareness. And I think about how, um, how much, well, COVID and the lockdowns really hurt people and it really hurt kids, really Big hurt time. kids. Yeah, I mean, you took these kids who were used to having this vibrant social experience, you know, going out and seeing their friends every day. And now, now they're shut in their house and they're scared to death to see anybody. And they're yes. sitting on a computer, which is, I, I think that you could, there's few things you could do that are worse for kids than to plug them into a computer for eight yes. hours a day. Yes. And, and that, then you let them back out and you go, oh, here, have life again. You can go back to life. And they're so, they're so messed up. I mean, they're just yes. really struggling from these experiences. And so what do we do? We increase the funding for mental health services yes. and we make sure that there's more counselors per capita in every school and, and, oh, mental health, mental health. But who's, who are, are you staffing these positions with? You're staffing these positions with the same kind of people that are being trained in, in programs like we both yes. have been talking about. And like Lisa's talking about in this article. Yes. And, you know, I think that there's long been many reasons to hesitate to take a child to a therapist. I'm, yes, I'm very, um, and I don't mean this in a political sense. I'm just very conservative about, yes. Um, children in therapy and what I think is appropriate there, but even more so now, I mean, this is, um, you're, you're exposing them directly to someone who's been trained to indoctrinate. So trained to indoctrinate and handpicked. I mean, let's not forget we're handpicking the people that go into the programs. We yeah, are yeah. creating this new Activists. form. Yes of, um, activist therapy. It's, mm -hmm, it, mm -hmm. you, you know, and I agree as well. I mean, I was never a fan of throwing kids into therapy too quickly. Anyhow, and my work, you know, with, I did a lot of grief work in the beginning of my career. One of the things that would happen is that there'd be a death in the family, right? So parent mm -hmm. would die. The other parent uh, would call and say, Oh, I want my child in a grief support group mm -hmm. right now. And that was, <clears throat> excuse me, um, we never wanted them to just be in therapy because somebody died. Um, and well, their reaction is very to difficult it. to also it's, then have to get in. You're a little kid. You've just yes. lost your parent. And now here's this stranger that you're supposed to learn to get to know. And that introduces so many yes. new variables. It's that's interesting. Yes, it does. And, mm -hmm. and it's really the parent's are, or the surviving adult, you know, uh, is, is very, um, has, has their own grief reaction and they they themselves are just overwhelmed by their, their feelings. And so we would tell them to be very, you know, we were very wary of putting them in therapy too soon. Like it was almost like telling them that any kind of reaction they were going to have was pathologized in a sense that something was wrong or bad about mm -hmm. it, or that they needed extra help, more help than the average kid. Right who had no. the same thing happen. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we were very mindful of that. We always suggested doing groups like support groups because the groups were just a groups, groups of peers and they yeah. were run by therapists and they would have all sorts of different things, you know, related to, to life after, you know, things, mm -hmm. how things have changed after. So there's a lot more. That um, seems like a really a good alternative. Yeah, group, that's group very... Yeah, the group model, and it's not even group therapy with support group model. So sort of mm -hmm. like kids helping kids, like you know, peer and support, peer support. And then you had like an adult who was obviously trained, you just know, facilitating, just facilitating. Yeah, yeah. we had um teen group leaders that would be with the adult, and there mm -hmm. are people that you know had gone through the program too, and so they were there to talk to um to the kids about what it was like for them, you know, when the father, father, daughter dance came around and mm -hmm. there is no mm -hmm. father, you mm -hmm. know, or what, they yeah. don't, I don't know that they have that stuff is traditionally now, but they did back even as far as maybe 10 years, 12 years ago, those things were still. Well, going. now it would be like 
parent child dance it would be a yeah and yeah. not even parent now it's adult caregiver oh gosh child. you can't even say parent so i mean it's anyhow but yeah at that time you know they would help them cope with the fact that like okay you know you 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 can't go with your dad like who can who else can you bring and and then you know talk about your feelings around that but but it wasn't about let's change the language mm -hmm. to suit the 10% or so 25, 20 to 25% of kids, you know, that will experience that it was, let's change that all the death of a parent. It's like, I think it's, what was the statistic? It's either one in 10 or two in 10 in LA County will experience the death of a parent before the age of 25. Oh, okay. wow. That's quite it's, a lot. It's, it is a lot, That's a lot. but but still it's like, to change, you know, 10 to yes. 20%. And so there's another 80 to 90% that there's won't. still 80 yeah. to 90% that won't. Now, again, we were using the word parent and we can't say that anymore. Um, that percentage is even smaller of people who've experienced the death of an adult who was caring for them. That was not their parent. Now you're going to take mm -hmm. that number and cut it down to yeah. probably 10% of that number. That's yeah. going to give you the, 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 the two kids per a hundred. Okay. Right. They experienced the death of someone, you know, who, who've had a parent die that that wasn't their actual parent, but it was the adult caregiver and right. with the adult caregiver, because their parent, biological parents and able to care for them. Like a grandmother now or something at, right. Mm -hmm. So a grandmother or an aunt or a foster parent or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. So now you're looking at a percentage that's even even smaller. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah. So now we've removed, you know, and that, and I'm just talking about grief here now, we've, but we've removed all of that, all of those words to accommodate whatever percentage of kids um, that are in any scenario with a caregiver that are not their biological parent, um, in order to protect whatever the percentage is, that's that smaller percent. And that's not, um, you know, something came up today, we were talking to somebody that we were going to be, that's going to be on our podcast soon. And, you know, he brought up this great point about the dominant view is not necessarily an oppressive view. So you may have yeah, a dominant, okay. so, yeah. so the dominant narrative or the dominant fact, okay, is that mm -hmm. 80, 90% of these kids won't go through something like this. Does that mean that it oppresses that? Does that oppress the 10 or 20% who do? No, mm -hmm. the dominant fact or the dominant story that most people won't go through that does not oppress the people who do go through it. It doesn't. That's say, rational to say that. That's rational, rational but that's in, that's in opposition to queer Correct. theory. I would say that Correct. just by virtue of being dominant, it Correct. must be subverted. Correct. Okay. Which is exactly what we were discussing uh, when that came up was queer okay. theory. And yeah. I wanted a very clear understanding of that. So that's the whole idea, though, is that because of that, you would have to deconstruct, dismantle all of those things. Right. Those institutions. Now, so now the institution of therapy itself as a structure has to be dismantled. Dismantled. In order to, you know, accommodate for or fill in for this whatever percentage. So yeah. it was um, a very interesting comment, but it helped a lot to just think about it that way that the yeah. dominant view or dominant fact does not oppress necessarily the minority yeah and and when you're talking about there are more people that have yeah it's just a statistical on, sort of, of like an observational thing sometimes right. correct so right. when you're talking about even back when you were teaching grief um grief therapy and you had some reasons to hesitate you had some cautions or caveats yes. to children being brought into therapy you know, I, I think that there are a lot of reasons to hesitate, even yes. wokeness aside, even without that. Yes. And when my older daughter um, was a kid, she was maybe 11 or 12. I can remember this mom, another uh, a friend's, or her, one of her friend's mothers talking about her daughter's diagnoses just right in front of the kid. And doing, and it, it struck me as so weird. It was, it was mm -hmm. kind of the first time I'd been exposed to something like that, mm -hmm. but it seemed, I felt like covering the little girl's ears. <laughs> is how I felt because yeah. this mom was talking about it. She's like, oh, she has, she has ADHD. She has, and she's listing medical and also mental health kind of diagnoses. And it felt like she was saying, so she's special. Yes. It, but it was in a positive way. And 
there's a lot to dissect there because it's not that those things should be seen as character deficits or, or anything that makes her not as good as somebody else. I don't think that, but they are limitations that are to be worked with and to help the kid overcome or, or, or work well in spite of at least. And the way that this was being done, it was being done like these were badges of celebratory victimhood. Yes. And I, I had not really heard that done with diagnoses before. Yes. And I think that there's been this push for a long time to destigmatize diagnosis, which is, I don't know. I mean, there's a conversation to be had about how valuable that is and whether we've gone too far with it. And I kind of think that maybe we have, but one of the things that really struck me is that when a kid is, you know, a young adolescent, they're in this, this phase of, of identity formation and exploration. Yes. And if you start giving them labels like that, they're going to attach really closely to those. And you you risk creating somebody whose identity is based on some of these things. They're like, they are badges of identity for this person. And so that always struck me as one of the reasons to avoid a medicalized diagnosis-based mental health model for kids. Yes. Among other reasons. Well, kids are not fully developed anyway. Their mm-hmm. brains are not fully developed until they're 25 or mm-hmm. so. That's when the brain stops growing. I mean, this is probably research, accepted research for the past decade, at least. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your so, prefrontal cortex um, is not complete. Yes. So this is why I have a huge problem. And this comes on the heels again of this earlier conversation I had today. But this is why I have a huge issue with diagnosing gender dysphoria in children. I mean, it's, it, you cannot diagnosing in children in general, I think is extremely difficult. I think it's very nuanced and I think it's a lot less common than what we're seeing. It's overdiagnosed in my opinion. And I think that's because we're not giving kids a chance to grow out of phases. Yeah. We're looking at these models of child and adolescent development with, you know, kind of this lens that's oh, both yeah. too broad and too specific. It's both. Right. And so then we're hitting these marker points. So a lot of the time the kids are just a symptom of what's happening in the family with what's wrong yes. with the parents. Yeah. That's a, I mean, 90, 90% of family therapy treatment, you know, is about, you know, not about parent coaching, it's about parent coaching. And it's mm-hmm. about, you know, the identified patient in the family is usually the kids and usually the what their symptomology is directly related to or reflection of the symptomology in the unit. And right. parents can't stand hearing that because they, you know, they want the they want a quick fix and they want, they want somebody else to take care of it. Exactly. You know, but at the end of the day, child therapy, adolescent therapy, it doesn't work unless it's implemented in the home as well, unless changes are made at home. When changes are not made at home, it fails a hundred yeah. times out of a hundred. That's it. Maybe that child will take what you say or your sessions and know that there are adults out there who care, or there's an Mm -hmm. adult out there who, Mm -hmm. you know, they have a positive memory with, and that's wonderful, but the actual interventions themselves that, um, you want, you know, the child to have boundaries at home and all of that, you know, a hundred times out of a hundred, they fail if the parents aren't involved. Right. And like you said about diagnosing gender dysphoria or what we're talking about with diagnosing other mental health issues, it, you, because they're working so hard on forming their identity, you run the risk of concretizing that thing by offering that to them at that point in their life. It's yes. And, you know, I have, you know, people in my personal life, I know that we're just about failing pretty much out of high school and mm-hmm. end up discovering a true love for, you know, science. Okay. Something that requires mm-hmm. a lot of math and a lot of complicated theories and their high school scores would not reflect that they mm-hmm. are even capable of doing that, let alone right. to be interested. Because so in much growth happens. So much growth happens. And then they realize, oh, wait a minute. And I'm thinking of one in particular, you know, mm-hmm. I'm just going to take one class at a time now that I'm in college or two classes at a time, I'm just going to take my time. And oh my gosh, all of a sudden we discover this brilliant talent emerging. You don't give them a chance to do that. If you are throwing them into therapy because they're not where you think they need to be, you know, there's a difference between a child that's displaying symptomology that is, you know, likened to schizophrenia. Okay. For example, Mm -hmm. Okay. Where they, you know, have command 
hallucinations mm -hmm. and those come out hallucinations are telling them to harm themselves or somebody else. But again, the percentage of that is so small mm -hmm. when it comes to, you know, kids and mental health, thankfully it mm -hmm. does exist. It's just mm -hmm. not huge um, on, on the spectrum. And that, that is something to be looked at in a serious way. That's something to be, you know, um, taken to a psychiatrist for, but it's not the majority of this, of the kids. That's the thing now with the gender dysphoria and with the kids, you know, in different gendered, but you know, it, it, we used to tell them in grief and I'll say it in this way too, in this form too, what is always helpful the most is parents sitting down and talking to their kids directly about this stuff. Mm -hmm, That's mm -hmm. what's always ha has been mm -hmm. the most direct help is the adults sitting down and having those conversations, not us as the therapists. But with the gender dysphoria and then the active activism involved, therapy is going to make your child worse. And I will say that again, therapy in this current climate without very like clear ideas and boundaries and, mm -hmm. and understanding is going to make your child worse mm -hmm. in this climate. It just Absolutely. will. Absolutely. You need to be discerning because if you're in the hands of a raw of the wrong therapist, it is the difference between your kid having a chance to explore a little bit about their feelings, learn how to tolerate uncomfortableness and just mm -hmm. know that that's part of life and that you can't kind of always have what you want. Mm -hmm. um, and a kid who's then so fragile and so weak that they're suicidal multiple times, you know, throughout the course of their lives and um, get roped into a gender cult which mm -hmm. tells you that the whole entire reason problem and, and, and stress that you're feeling is because you're being oppressed, yeah. you know, in the wrong body in a way. Yeah. So that's what a therapist can do. That's the kind of power they hold. I've talked with two parents just in the last month who um, reached out to me because their child was convinced through therapy that they were, that they, they were transgender through relationships with therapists, there you which go. is, through I mean, that's therapy. Yeah. Through <laughs> therapy. It doesn't get worse than this. No, no, it's, uh, it's really awful. Yeah. Yeah. That's the power that it, that it, that, that it holds. I mean, and that's funny because, you know, I was at a family's event. Okay. Mm -hmm. A couple of date, maybe a week ago and everyone's sitting at the table talking about this new woke thing that's coming around and there's this weird gender thing. And I grabbed the arms of the chair I was in. You're like, come sit I by me. <laughs> and I said, I told you so. Oh my gosh. I, and then I shot and I just had this, my hands were making this banner gesture. I told you so it was gonna come yeah. to you. Know, you thought you were going to be in this little like community that's so insulated from the rest of the world and it's fairly yeah. conservative mm -hmm. you know family values and they didn't believe me and then my oh geez and then my person my 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 loved one looked at me and said she's been talking about this for a very long time and we've all blown her off and I mm -hmm. said thank you hallelujah mm -hmm. I didn't want to be right I wanted to be heard because but I the writing to was on the wall and you saw yes. it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So then this person says, yes, yeah, she's, she's been saying this for, you know, the past couple of years and we've just kind of rolled her eyes like, oh, there she goes off again. I want to hurt her rants. Right. Yeah. Her, her well, you were, rant. you were in the indoctrination center. So, you know, I told them I was in it and I said, listen, you know, there's no, you're not going to get out of this alive here. You're, you're going to, you're going to face gonna it, face it. Yeah. And you, prepared in advance mm -hmm. and how do you want to deal with it and I mean there were so many concerns about who got accepted to where based on what and just mm -hmm. hearing about other schools and how the admissions process was going for college college students that were transferring from even mm -hmm. community colleges and what they're looking at on the application you know you see kids of you know color or backgrounds that are not white getting in with way lower grades mm -hmm. way lower mm -hmm. scores mm -hmm. no letters of recommendation for example over kids that are white and that have better grades and letters of recommendation so what's the answer there well it's kind of what i was preaching about in that regard too um which is you know there's a bigger apparatus at work here it's an apparatus it's mm -hmm. a machine mm -hmm. you know and i think i think that there's a bigger there, it's interesting to look at what, what's driving this. And I think that in terms of, I think there's a crisis in parenting 
for yes. one thing. And I, I haven't really, I, I'd love to give this some real thought and, and draw it, pick it apart and, and think about all the components. But it seems to me that, well, there's, there's the whole, um, concept of attachment parenting, which I don't have a problem with. I like it. And in fact, I used a lot of that, those principles in raising my kids, even before I knew what that, that phrase was. And that's just being responsive to your child, doing things like, you know, uh, breast extended breastfeeding, um, co-sleeping with your baby and not putting them in a crib in their own room, et cetera. And just sort of being child led with certain things and, and not so rigidly expecting to place a structure on the child, but I think you can take that too far and you can become a really permissive parent and you can fail to put boundaries and, and discipline into the child's life to help them to develop those things for themselves. And you can end up with all kinds of power dynamics that are difficult within a family relationship. But, but another factor that, that strikes me is the increase in um, expertism, I guess, I, mm. is, is how I keep thinking about it yes. with regard to child rearing. Yes. Like the amount of well baby visits that a yes. new parent does, it's, yes. it's pretty nuts. Yes. If there's something, if your child is ill, I could see bringing them to the doctor, but you're, you're supposed to bring your kid in at like, you know, a couple days old and then at 10 days old and then at two weeks old and then at two months old and then at four months old and then at six and you're supposed to just constantly be going to the doctor for advice on every aspect of raising your child so you're not going if you're following this modern parenting paradigm you're getting all of your information on how you're supposed to raise your kid from an expert that you've hired who is then then becomes your authority outside of grandma or or you know, your aunt or maybe your sister who has kids that are older than yours or whatever. And certainly outside of trusting your own intuition, because everything is, is your, and, and one of the reasons that they do this is because they want to train you to continue to see the doctor. Yes. That's exactly right. They want to train you to do, to, to do that. My, as you're talking, I'm thinking very clearly about what my mother said when Mm -hmm. we were my sister was first having, you know, kids and whatnot. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, my mother had said, you know what, the way that you, um, raise a child or improve a child's immune system is to take them out and let them just let them get sick, take them, them out in the yeah. world. Yeah. Go, why Expose are you them sheltering? To Expose yeah. them to things. Why are you sheltering this little newborn baby? Let them go with you to the restaurant. Let them go with you to wherever, um, that whole concept that, you know, these parents are so afraid of germs coming in the house. And my mother was like, uh-uh, you know, the more that, you know, you can build their immune system up as best as you possibly can expose. She was all yeah. about that. Yeah. And it, it was, um, something that just very naturally was in, instinctual to her. She mm-hmm. just kind of mm-hmm. felt. And so I don't know. I mean, I, I didn't really ever get sick as a kid. I almost I, was never yeah. sick. I was, yeah. never, you know, but I well, also wasn't overly. Yes. Um, well, you know, it changed so much just, so I have two sets of kids. I have two daughters. And then I have 13 years between my two daughters and my two sons. And I noticed how much more reliant parents are expected to be on, on experts now, even than they were when my daughters were small. So there's been a massive shift. I mean, in just a decade, yeah. In in just a half. Exactly. Exactly. And it, and uh, it's things like so I worked in a naturopathic clinic and I shared an office with a young, um, pediatric naturopath and she was wonderful. I really liked this person quite a lot, but she was new and she was very authoritarian with her, with her patients. And there was this mother who had a newborn and what the baby, the doctor wasn't happy with how well the baby was gaining weight. Mom didn't take the doctor's advice. Doctor called CPS. Doctor called CPS right away to get somebody else involved because the mother wasn't taking her advice. I was appalled by this, but this was the attitude was listen to me or else I will make you listen to me. Yes. And this wasn't a neglectful mother. I mean, this was a, she was an older mother and, and a very wanted and very cared for child. It just, she didn't agree with I guess, supplementing formula or whatever it was that the doctor was trying to get her to do. Yes. 
And so you see this overreach of the experts also over, you will do what I say. Yes. And so in a sense, when something starts to go wrong with your child, with your teen, and they're exhibiting behaviors that you don't, you don't know how to handle, it's, it's almost become trained into parents to think that they need to outsource this to an expert. Like I am not qualified to help my kid with this problem. So let me find someone who is. Yes, that is right. There is an over-reliance. And we talked about this very briefly when we discussed um, kind of this phenomenon of of what happens in the Midwest or places where they are small towns and there's only a couple of people in Mm -hmm. that small town that, you know, are the quote unquote experts and why that then becomes so much worse than even, or can be, than these bigger cities where you have, Hmm. because at least you still have multiple different, you know, kinds of options. But when you put all of your cards into the couple of the two or three, you know, Mm -hmm, experts mm -hmm. or whomever that live in your area or that you trust and they have, they are, their word is the final word. Then that's where you've lost control completely of raising your child. You've lost control of your Mm -hmm, own mm -hmm. physical health as well. Yeah. And so when this, you know, that, that colleague of mine was talking about why the Midwest is, is it's easy to capture the Midwest um, in that regard, it's because of the leaning on the expert, this expertism phenomenon that's mm-hmm. going on that mm-hmm. you know, you're talking about, that we're talking about here. And it's leaning on those experts for um, answers to questions that are just even more involved than even just health. Right. So now they're turning to the right. therapist and the psychologist. Right. Which uh, is using the same playbook. It really is the same just the same. Medicalizing. No, it is totally sure. medicalizing. I think that that's one of the, the main criticisms I have of where yeah. the counseling and therapy field is, is heading yes. is it's becoming very rigidly medicalized. And I think that if there's one, well, there are many, I think there's not really an area of being a human that lends itself very well to that kind of system, systematization, yes. but if any absolutely doesn't, it's the emotional and spiritual life of a person. Yes. Which that's we're now always doing. been missing, I think, too, in general. And I think I've, you know, maybe mentioned it here, but the one thing that I noticed as I went through kind of just my, my program as a student and then now, you know, the extensive lack of belief in any higher power is very prominent. And I don't, I'm not trying to hoist or thrust religion upon anybody because I'm not religious myself, but if I didn't have a sense of a greater, you know, why does the 12 step model work so well? Mm. It's the higher power. That's why that is the core of, of it is based upon something greater than yourself. Even if you don't believe in a higher power, being of service and turning your, you know, rather than thinking about your problems all day and going out and being of service to somebody else, that's the greater power. That is your higher power then. That's the higher power right there, right? So I'm talking about not necessarily God, for me it is, but it doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be for everybody, but a higher power that, you know, an energy even that is, that's positive in nature that, that somehow kind of gives you those intuitive thoughts or ideas or moments, the wisdom, the, the, I felt that gut instinct, like, where Mm -hmm, does that come mm -hmm. from this and sort of greater, sort of like a feeling of a a sense of the universal. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And that's been missing so much. And I think that it contributes to a lot of this lack of purpose and sense of, you know, purpose that, that people just don't really have. They're not, well, and it's provided it's in the social justice ideology in a different yes. way, in a perverse yes. way. Yes, very much. So that even to say God now is mm-hmm. very anti-critical social justice and it's extremely, mm-hmm. um, it's like I, disqualifying. It's disqualifying mm-hmm. and it's, it's, um, you know, um, it's almost like a, an insult or something, a degrading or something. I mean, there's so people be insulted if you actually talk about any of that stuff in a yeah, therapy classroom yeah. these days. And that to me is very difficult. Well, I don't do 12 steps. Don't believe in a higher power. Forget God. Then what is bigger or greater than you mm-hmm. that you have, you know, some sort of agency to, to participate in paying it forward. What is that? You know, right. that's the guiding principle 
um, and why the 12-step model works the way that it does. I don't care what addiction, there's a bunch of addiction models out there at the end of the day. And please, somebody send me, you know, information. If you've done research that can disprove that the most effective model of sobriety still to this day is 12-step. I want to see somebody show me that that's not true. And do you um, think that you attribute that more to the, the aspect of it that uh, calls to the higher power than to, yes. the, than to the community peer support? Um, I think mutual reinforcement. I think aspect. it's both, but okay. you, you're going to, mm-hmm. I think that's a close second. And the reason okay. I say a close second is because at the end of the day, there's going to be a moment where it's 3am in the morning, you mm-hmm. are tossing and turning, you are stressed out, you are afraid, you are alone, you are, you know, uh, you can't get anybody on the phone. You can't get your peer support. Mm-hmm. You can read the affirmations or things mm-hmm. that you say mm-hmm. all day long, mm-hmm. but in that moment where it's just you, yourself and you, mm-hmm. what do you reach for? There has to be for a meaning people... for why you're doing this. Correct. Why am I doing yes. this? Okay. Yes. Yeah. If you don't have that as an anchor, then yeah. I don't think that you can fully make use of, of your peer group to mm-hmm. the extent that you would be able to, because you got to figure it out when you're by yourself. Sometimes you, you can, you can have 1500 different tools that are, you know, at your disposal, go to yoga, go to, okay. But at 3am, you may not be able to go to a yoga class. So what are you going to do in that moment? You can right. go to yoga on the ground. That's still you reaching for something bigger than yourself. It's you trying to harness energy or you know, um, interactions or something that are greater than you. So I still think that this greater than you still kind of takes the cake and, and, and is the anchor mm-hmm. that, that these other blocks are built upon. Even mm-hmm. peer support is greater than you. It's the sum is greater than its parts or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's where I think the, the, the model is so successful is because mm-hmm. it rests on that. And that I think takes a lot of attention off of, you know, the whole me, 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 and this sort of narcissism that is critical mm-hmm. social ju- mm-hmm. justice, this sort of narcissistic, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it's no flaky, you know, sort of fragility, um, mm-hmm. for lack of better words. Uh, I heard one today that it was the terminal uniqueness. Well, no the, one understands terminal uniqueness. Terminal uniqueness. Oh, terminal unique. Terminal, okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. No one understands me. No one well, that's me. kind no of like a. That seems like the cousin of nihilism, really. It, for sure. Yes, it's the cousin mm. of nihilism. I love yeah. it. Absolutely. Interesting. Because it's, it, it, is so, it is so fatalistic in its own way. And so yeah. you it's prevent, right, connection. Yeah. You do. Right. And, the, and Gabor Mate, who's an addiction you know, specialist, okay, and he's kind of the new you know, model through which we teach addiction. But you know, he says the opposite of addiction is connection. And I think that's mm-hmm. actually, I would say that for depression too. I, I think mm-hmm. that's pretty mm-hmm. prominent for a few, few things, mm-hmm. but where does that connection happen? And what happens with the connection? Again, it's like the sum being greater than its parts. And so mm-hmm. that's where I think we kind of stop thinking about the, you know, what is bigger than me yeah. um, uh, in this moment right now. And maybe right now that will take off the, that sinking self, you know, yeah. Kind of, yeah. No well, that's a really good point. I mean, you're talking about the, uh, the removal of spirituality from, yeah, from this whole, has it ever even been much of a part of mental health? I mean, it's kind of at odds with, yes, it's not something that can easily be like chained and chunked and, and done in a technical medical way. No. Yes. So, and, and so the model that we have now is going very technocratic, very, I, I felt like being trained to be a counselor felt like I was being trained to be a technician that could punch in codes instead yes. of feeling like I was being trained to work with you know the intricacies of people. I, yes. So here's the thing. And again, great ideas that have been turned sour, right? And I said this before, some of these were great ideas turned sour. The APA president, okay, um, did a 17 minute TED talk video. And I just saw this last week and I was mortified Mm. and she's a black woman. And, you know, she came out and talked about exactly what you just said, plugging in 
hmm. people and, and plugging in diagnosing and plugging in treatment and all. And this. she didn't like this or she did. And she okay. said, you know, this is why we have to decolonize psychology so that we don't just plug things in and we okay. don't just, so, so, okay. So I was, you know, kind of taken aback because the kind of interventions that are out there that are sort of known to be effective, like why we all got into this, that have nothing to do with your immutable characteristics and everything to do with how you personally sort of Mm -hmm. as a person move through the world and your own identity formation Mm -hmm. outside of what society tells you outside of what your family tells you, Mm -hmm. you know, it's how do you, what do you say about your own self? You know, what's your, what, 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 you know, what value do you, do you hold for yourself? Mm-hmm. So these are some things that are extremely important, you know, tools of intervention and qu- qualities of treatment models that, that are important that work um, as well. But she, the dismissiveness of all of it, because to her, the case example she used was a family, a black family who was successful, you know, the parents were successful, whatever. And um, she gave an example of how therapists might work with them and from a classical point of view. And then she mm-hmm. gave a woke therapist and the woke therapist said, you know, I think part of the problem here is that you're not acknowledging like the influence of racism and discrimination and all of these, you know, isms that are happening isms. all around you. So let's get up and start redef- re- redefining our own value and culture. And, and, and they start incorporating African dance into their therapy sessions and, oh mm. my gosh, they get better. So this si- simplifying, right. That, that nothing else, right. That, that mm-hmm. we're, that it, it, it all goes back to going back to your roots of, of, you know, your, your, your ancestry is the answer to all of this, that therapy, the classical models dismiss that. So I find it just absolutely kind of mortifying, but at the same time, puzzling to me that you can have these, and this is what I've said about critical social justice. It's too boundaried and it's rigid in its, mm-hmm. in its thinking and it's mm-hmm. too porous in its thinking yeah. because it allows, right. For too many different, you know, kind of, there's no guardrail with any of it. Right. It's, yeah. it's, it's out of control. So without any containment, the ideas themselves and the people within that, these systems themselves are not contained I yeah. mean, it can bring out the darkest of the darkest of all of us. You know, if we all have a dark shadow, you know, sort of a Jungian idea. Yeah. Then that can bring that out. Okay. Out of anybody, the person that's the most, most spiritual. And, and maybe that's connected to the kind of the, the, the drive to survive, which would be a mm-hmm. Freudian concept, right? That that's kind of the, our main driving force is survival. So at the end of the day, you know, these kinds of things are taken out of context and placed into a different scenario and stripped away of their value. So now she's devalued all of the history of everything that we've ever done in Mm. psychology for the sake of the fact that we didn't include, incorporate cultural components into a family treatment model. That may have Hmm. worked for one family. It's not going to work for all of them. Well, and what it sounds like she really did. Individualizing again, right? It really sounds like like she provided them with a value structure that they were able to identify with. And it was almost a placebo effect kind of thing because it was coming in. It's coming in so strong from somebody who sounds really sure. And so you think, well, yes, that's the answer to it. And then then through exploration and and play and and opening themselves. It was a made up. Oh, it was just made up. I should should make clear. Oh, it was a made up anecdote. Oh, this anecdote. Let me just make sure I'm clear about that. Yeah. They they do that so often just to suit their argument. Yes. And so I sat there and went, this isn't even real. Mm -hmm. And, and, Mm -hmm. and so you're talking about an example of what you could introduce, but it's what you just said. Yeah. But then that's all from the therapist's mind. That's not coming from the family as like, she's not listening to their, yeah, she's just she's placing that on them. And- Correct. So they want to say mm-hmm. that in their corner, that that's what everybody's doing is just, you know, plugging numbers in at the same time, on the other side of the coin, my issue is that they're just plugging, numbers they're just in plugging numbers. They're just it's, plugging it, their right? own formula. In. I have that. Let me exactly. insert white supremacy here. Exactly. Let me insert exactly. critical race theory here. Yeah, exactly. Bingo. Yeah. Yeah. That's or, exactly or what it you're is. a teenager. Same thing. It must be that you're trans. Correct. Yeah. 
they're doing the same thing they loathe because it mm-hmm. fits their story. Absolutely. It's their formula to plug in. Yeah. While they want to preach about uniqueness all day long till they're blue in the face, they're doing the same thing. That's, yeah. That that was my big issue with what she was saying and what she was doing. Because at first, in the first few minutes, she got individualized treatment plans. Then yeah, we that heard what good. her individualized treatment plans look like. And how colonization of psychology doesn't allow for you to explore your cultural ancestry and your connection to it. I mean, that is the most ludicrous thing I've ever, I've ever heard. Yeah, and yeah. It, it come out of the president of the APA. Wow. Okay? Yeah. That should yeah. scare everybody. If that people d- are not afraid that are in this profession, you need to be afraid right now. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a bad thing to be doing. Okay. And, it, it, it's, it's. And that brings me back to this question. I ask for myself and I ask for other people, which is what, what are the alternatives for people who want to work in that, in, in that capacity with other people? And I mean, I've got, uh, yeah, that's, and that's what, that's where I've landed, but there is, I'm very aware. And I don't like that. I didn't finish my master's degree. I don't like that. I don't, it's, it's, it's hard to wrestle with that, you know, that I, I know I, I have a little bit more work to do to finish that. I don't think I ever will be able to, I'm still talking to Antioch through a lawyer, but, um, I don't think that's going to happen. And then do I sink all that time into a new school just to go all the way back through it? And where does that leave? Where does that leave me? And also I have the benefit of going through most of a training program but somebody else who feels like I do, or feels like you did before you started your education and wants to go into this kind of work, they need some sort of training. They need some sort of mentorship and program. And when, when going through one of these captured programs is basically like putting yourself through woke indoctrination, psychological torture, and uh, you know, an awful lot of cognitive dissonance just to eke out the bits that are valuable for yourself, then that's not a very appealing path for a lot of reasons. So what do you do? Because it's not really sufficient just to go hang up a shingle and act like, you know, everything because you don't, no, you, need, you still not. need some training. You know, this is, it's a good question. And I think, you know, being a member of a uh, critical therapy antidote, kind of being one of the, there's sort of four of us that are kind of becoming the, well, there's the founder, one of them, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. couple, and then I kind of just came on, leached on someone else's, you know, mm-hmm. coattails, I guess I somehow got, you're doing a fantastic job. <laughs> thank you. Um, thank you for that. Uh, but you know, there's just really some incredible people I've been around and anyway, you know, and these are conversations we have sometimes in, in, you know, these, these meetings that, yeah. that, that we do, and I don't really know how to answer the question. I think there's, um, there's an existential crisis that therapists are facing right now. Yeah, it's absolutely really about mm-hmm. can I, within this context, still provide the kind of therapy authentically that I want to do, you know, you know, telling the truth, somebody mentioned something about truth telling and it's like, yes, okay. Truth telling is important, but if your board doesn't back up the scientific truth that you're trying to share then you are more vulnerable to losing your license and ability Mm -hmm. to practice. Mm -hmm. So we've left the whole landscape of rational, sane thinking, jumped into this big ocean of irrationality with just wave after wave coming after us. And it's like, well, how long till you drown? You know, is there a way to keep yourself afloat? What do you have to give up and give into in order to do that? Because some therapists sacrificing a lot much and some will it's sacrificing a lot. Some aren't going to face, you know, those challenges and some are going to face a lot of them. Well, I've wondered, like, I've wondered if there's room for the, for an offshoot that is based on not mental health, but existentialism and philosophy. Yeah. So, you know, sort of a, a different thing. I mean, that's kind of what I model what I'm doing after it's not it's not at all based on any kind of diagnostic mental yeah. health model. It's more about existentialism and what is, where do you find the meaning in your life and how do you work yes. to find that again and, yes. and et, et cetera. But it's more philosophical than yes. anything that resembles clinical. It's not clinical in the slightest. Yes. And that might be the parallel profession is that it is something that's more based on that. I mean, it, there's, there's no, it's, it's hard to say 
you know, you don't, we're never going to go back to what we were before the capture. So we have to become something else. We mm-hmm. we're not, we're still going to continue to move forward because time moves forward. So we have yeah. to become something else. And I don't know what that something else is, but I like, I mean, I love what you're doing. I love that idea um, because it's kind of in line with the therapist's own personal questions and struggles right now, um, mm-hmm. their own kind of existential philosophical, you know, purpose of why I'm here. Why am I doing what I do? That, that, that is something that every one of them, you know, have to face now in, mm-hmm. in the mirror, mm-hmm. seeing how captured our regulatory bodies are and institutions, mm-hmm. which means we're, you're no longer free to practice under ethical codes, mm-hmm. you know, that are reasonable and sane. Now we have some additional, you know, sort of, um, spotlight on what we're doing in there. That's, mm-hmm. that, that's problematic. So what, what do you do? And it's, it's, it, it's too big a question, I think, um, to be able to answer. I, I like that idea of the parallel path of an existential philosophical type of, of, you know, because at the end of the day, I mean, that's probably what therapy is anyway, right. Mm-hmm. Searching, searching for meaning and purpose. I mean, I'm sure mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. a lot of uh, you know, you can fit all of those models into those two things, meaning and purpose and mm-hmm. in, in purpose mm-hmm. and meaning you can, that's where you can learn to take action. Yeah. Because you have to have something that motivates you through life or else you fall into the exactly. abyss. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, and meaning, you know, I mean, you can always, you know, you can, whether the meaning is because this is something that happened, happened in your childhood and you're continuously replaying it because you've never fully processed it. That's meaning mm-hmm. right there. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of ways to incorporate that in a lot of ways in which meaning and purpose encapsulate almost every single model under this umbrella. So I think mm-hmm. that that's a very um, brilliant idea, as a matter of fact, um, to have something that is a parallel pro- program that focuses on that because mm-hmm. all these models end up at the end of the day, the core, why am I here? You know, mm-hmm. what am I doing here? Why? Mm-hmm. Why does this matter to me? you know, why am I even here receiving treatment? Why am I talking to this person? I mean, mm-hmm. it can just the, the very core of that um, of those questions all the way up to, you know, the existential crisis that I'm talking about, which is much bigger. Do I yeah. want to be part of a machine and apparatus? Right. Can I afford to start over? There's the, there's the very real cost of living. Can I afford to start over? Absolutely. Questions that, yeah. Come up, yeah. They, that do come up. Yeah. You know, it, it's, can you do that? Is it realistically realistic for you to do that? You know, can you afford to, you know, take care of your family that way? So, I mean, and my sense other- is that until people are ready to give up their insurance networks. Yes. They are not really going to be free to practice. Yes. The way that, because that's, that's a huge, um, that's a bind that you're in. Absolutely. That's a huge bind you're in. But it's, but it's something that people have come to rely on. Yes. So it's a difficult one to, to sort out. Yes. It's the very, you know, first group that wanted, you know, mental health services, because they're just as important as physical health services. Okay. Okay. That's a good idea in theory. Here's where we ended up with that good idea. Right. That's, that's again, the problem is like these, these good ideas end up becoming, you know, uh, tainted. They, they just become poisonous because it's just, it's this too much of a good thing concept. It's too, it's too extreme. And then when you go into this place of, of that, um, you know, you've lost the nuanced richness of that good idea. It's yeah. gone now. Well, yeah, it's just that, that attempting to collectivize yes. and it loses sight of humanity when you try yes. to apply something, yes. you know, in that broad collective sense. Yes. So, yeah. Yes. Yeah. It seems like it's one of those areas where you, you can't ever, it's always going to shift. You yes. can't really have a firm policy on something like that because as yes. soon as you make something firm, you've actually done the very thing that is yes. the death of the individual. I don't know. Yes. It's a paradox. It's such a paradox because that's exactly what happens. Now mm-hmm. you've made it accessible to everybody mm-hmm. because because you've done you've done that, but because now it's accessible to everybody, now they're the ones in control of yeah. how you're going to be able to do it. Now they've they've taken the the that the 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 steering wheel or they're they're taking the you know, the lead now, that's mm-hmm. the problem is you're under their thumb. Mm-hmm. So insurance makes you write treatment plans that come up with arbitrary goals that are not really measurable, but you have to find a way to say that they to are. try to make them look measurable, smart goals. You need to have smart yeah. goals to make them look measurable, very corporate. And achievable, yeah. very corporate, but you also have to prove 
that the person still needs you in order right. for them to still get approved coming, that they, they're not well enough yet. Yeah. You've determined by your analysis from the one hour a week you spend with them that they're not well enough yet. Mm-hmm. So the whole thing is sort of where, you know, the sweet spot between it's, and it's like that in addiction, you know, when you go to these residential treatment facilities, you know, um, people used to ask me a lot of the time, like, well, you know, what's the point of treating addiction? If like the, the rate of success is so small, it's not that the rate of success is so small. It's that if you cannot afford to pay for the long-term treatment that you need, you need a good one year in, in, mm. in, in patient, probably in another one year in a really good, sober, you know, kind of clean living home, I guess, depending on how significant and the addiction issue is. Yes. It's 30 days in a rehab. It doesn't matter if your addiction isn't that significant oh, okay. or it's has damaged you. It's you don't not feel enough. like that's good enough. Okay. Um, no, because when you get to the point that you need in inpatient treatment, okay. residential, I you're see. at a point where you, um, have not been able to stop on your own. Yeah. And okay. It's your whole brain chemistry, sort of everything about that part of you has started sort of, sort of change and mm-hmm. it has to be kind of re for lack recalibrated. of a better word, recal- recalibrated, <laughs> yeah, yeah. wired, right. Yeah. So that you need to, in order for that to happen, you need to have a certain amount of pressure and life circumstances fall on you to practice these new coping skills that don't involve substances in order for a lot of those things to happen. A good amount of time has to have passed where you are in a place that's very secure and very safe. Mm-hmm. So it's not that the models don't work. They actually mm-hmm. work exceptionally well and are tried and true. It's the fact that people when they're using insurance, insurance isn't going to pay for that length of time. They're not going to pay for you to be in treatment that long. Mm-hmm. And so then if you don't have anywhere from 20 to $90,000 a month Jeez. Wow. in your pocket to pay out of pocket, that's a ton. insurance denies your claims. What happens? Well, they go to a lower level of care mm-hmm. and it's not going to be as successful. And then here's where you see sort of the relapse. Wow. That's such a crazy again. amount of money. Yeah. That's about the cost. Sounds so, very inflated. It is. So they've turned that into a business too. That's yeah. another podcast for another day. But yeah. the point is, is that, you know, um, um, when you start to, to, okay, great insurance. Well, now here's the game, game playing that happens with it. Right. I know. I I do feel like we could spend a whole, if you want to, I mean, I I've dealt with yeah. insurance quite a lot. I worked in the medical field for oh, yeah. 11 That'd years doing insurance work. Yeah. So, yeah. Cause um, that, that'd be great. Cause that's yeah. what I was working in patient. Oh the yeah. Let's talk about that. I had to do all the time. Those were very rough because we had yeah. to make them look sick enough. Oh yeah. It's, it's ridiculous. Sick. Yeah. It really, uh, influences the care that's given Yes, unduly. Yes. And in the chat, I see David Carpenter. Thank you so much for the super chat. That's so nice. And then he says, I'm strongly considering canceling my own health insurance because of these things. Professionals who are ready to walk away from the insurance companies may find a base of clients who have also walked. And I, I think that's right. I mean, I, I, I carry insurance in case of something catastrophic, but I pay for consultations out of pocket because I don't, I don't like the insurance getting all of my information. I would rather not use it. So if I need to see a doctor and I don't see doctors very often, but if I do, I pay out of pocket. Yes. That's very smart. So yeah, but it's very smart, Christine. I, I guess we should give everybody a, a break from from our conversation because we've been talking for a while. We should pick Ooh, this up with yes. another one. Uh, Sounds good. In the next week or so, or two. Sounds weeks. good. Yeah. Sounds good. All thank right. you so much for thank you for coming to talk to me. Always such a pleasure. Thank you so Definitely. much. I love it. Yeah. And thanks to everybody yes. who is in the chat. We appreciate yes. you very much. Yes. Very much so. Thank you. Such a pleasure. All right.